This episode of Gather and Go is brought to you by Visit Savannah. Give your guests the opportunity to fall in love with Savannah, Georgia's hidden gems, coastal cuisines, exquisitely preserved history, and unique activities for groups of all sizes. Learn more at visitsavannah.com. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. I am your host, Brian Jewell. I'm delighted that you decided to spend some time with us today, and I am super excited to introduce you to Cheryl Hargrove, the subject of our featured conversation. Cheryl is a longtime friend and a real expert in cultural tourism. She is going to share some ideas with us today that are going to help us plan experiences for our travelers and our groups that are culturally authentic, that help them learn, help them have more engaging times when they travel, maybe even make them better people and make a positive impact on the places that your groups visit. You are not going to want to miss that. First, though, I want to share some travel news. Now, you may not have heard about this new law coming out of Los Angeles, or rather a city ordinance passed by the Los Angeles City Council. The city council has approved a measure that requires daily hotel room cleaning in the city of Los Angeles. This means that if you are staying in a hotel in Los Angeles for four nights, the hotel is required to provide daily housekeeping service for that room. Now, this was part of a measure uh, that included a raft of different regulations uh, for the hospitality industry. Uh, It also requires uh, that hotels limit the hours that can be worked by hospitality workers, specifically by, uh, by housekeepers. And it also limits the number of rooms that a housekeeper can be required to clean in a day. Now, uh, this measure was uh, widely supported by the city council and was also supported by members of the local hospitality workers union. Uh, It was opposed by many of the hotel owners and other hospitality organizations throughout the city. Uh, They say the new ordinance is going to exacerbate existing staffing shortages, driving labor costs and thus hotel rates even higher. Now, from where I sit, uh, this seems to be moving in exactly the opposite direction of the rest of the travel industry, as well as the preferences of the traveling public. You know, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it has been normal for hotels to limit the amount of time hospitality workers and housekeepers spend in hotel rooms. Part of that was to limit the uh, amount of exposure to germs, COVID-19 and other things like that. Uh, Recently, it's simply been because uh, there's a staffing shortage. There's a severe staffing shortage uh, in the hospitality industry and among the uh, workforce of uh, housekeepers in particular. And uh, I'm afraid that this measure is only going to make that worse. But it's also curious because this comes at a time uh, where hotels are continuing to limit the amount of uh, daily service that they offer. And honestly, I think the traveling public has gotten used to that. I know many people um, prefer to have housekeepers in their room less often, and they uh, have gotten used to the idea that their bed is not getting made, their linens aren't getting changed on a daily basis, and they're okay with that. So uh, this move by the Los Angeles City Council, well, from a travel point of view, it's rather puzzling. So it is something to keep your eye on. We will definitely keep our eyes on it. See if this is a trend that picks up steam in other destinations or whether it is kind of a random one-off thing that happens in Los Angeles. Either way, it'll be interesting to see what happens and how the public reacts. 
That brings us really well into our road tip of the week. You know, it's very awkward to be in a hotel room. Maybe you are getting dressed for the day. Maybe you just got out of the shower. Maybe you're doing something else in the bathroom and you hear the housekeeping staff start to come in your room. If you've ever been in that situation, you know, it can induce a moment of panic. I've been there a number of times. I don't recommend it. So what do I do to make sure that doesn't happen to me in a hotel room? Well, it's rather obvious, but I grab that do not disturb sign. As soon as I check into a room, I hang it on the front of my door. And let me tell you, I leave it there until I check out of the property. You know, that do not disturb sign uh, doesn't mean you're up to some hanky panky. It doesn't mean you're doing anything weird. It doesn't give anybody any reason to suspect that something funny is going on in there. All it means is that you don't want to be disturbed. And for someone like me who doesn't need the sheets changed, doesn't need new towels every morning, uh, it is a perfect tool to use to let the housekeeping staff know that I'm good, I don't need their services, and in fact, it's better if they don't come in to save us both some embarrassment. So if you are interested in avoiding those embarrassing situations, let me encourage you, make use of that do not disturb sign. That's what it's there for, and it can help save you from a really awkward situation. That is your road tip of the day. Now, before we go on, I want to share uh, something that you may not know about us, but that you might find really helpful. Uh, you know, we publish the group Travel Leader Magazine. We have a great website with tons of additional resources there. You may not know that we also publish an e-newsletter called the Group Travel Minute. That goes out twice a month and it has all kinds of resources that could be really helpful to you in your work planning, promoting, and leading trips. That newsletter has uh, some of the best content from our print publications, also some uh, helpful things like group games that you can play on the road, uh, other uh, digital tools, things that help you plan your travel. If you don't get the group travel minute, let me tell you, it will be really helpful to you and you need to subscribe to it right now. How do you do that? Well, you go over to grouptravelleader.com slash subscribe and you can sign up for it there. It is absolutely free. Well, it's almost time to get into our featured conversation with Cheryl Hargrove. Before we do, though, let me encourage you to stick around through the entire interview for the hot minute, because I'm going to give you some thoughts about problems that I see uh, with tour guides, especially docents and guides at historic attractions, cultural attractions, things that they are doing wrong and give you some ideas about things they could do right instead. So stick around for the hot minute. You won't want to miss that. We will be right back with Cheryl Hargrove. All right. So if you're looking for even more reasons to make plans to visit Savannah, look no further. From the moment you arrive, you'll be greeted with moss-draped live oak trees, fresh coastal breezes, and enchanting history around every cobblestone street. Savannah strikes a delicate balance between hip and historic. Casual, but cool. Elegant, yet approachable. Spend the day exploring the city's illustrious culture, roaming through the green city squares while sipping on your go-to cocktail before hopping a trolley to your next adventure. The best experiences happen when you let Savannah take you along for the ride. You never know what characters you'll meet or what's in store for your next tour. And that's just the way they like it. See why groups of all sizes fall in love with Savannah at visitsavannah.com. 
All right, everybody. My guest today is a cultural travel expert with more than three decades of experience in the travel industry, where she has worked on heritage tourism projects in all 50 states and more than 15 countries. She's the author of the book, Cultural Heritage Tourism, Five Steps for Success and Sustainability, and is the president of the consulting firm Hargrove International. Cheryl Hargrove, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. So cultural tourism, uh, those are two words that people are very familiar with. But I wonder how many people are familiar with uh, what you mean by cultural tourism. So can you kind of define that term for people who maybe have not thought about it before? Absolutely. It is really traveling to experience the activities, the artifacts, the places that authentically represent people of the past to present. It's really place-based. It is not manufactured experiences, but it's those traditions and the historic, the cultural, the intangible, the tangible elements that make every destination unique. Gotcha. So give us some examples of uh, places where you have seen that implemented really well. Well, certainly Charleston and Savannah and historic places like Santa Fe um, are destinations that come to mind. But there are also a lot of other places that I think um, really represent um, the essence of place. I mean, uh, in Cooperstown which or in Corning, New York, which has the um, wonderful Main Street, but it also has the Corning Museum of Glass to talk about you know, the importance of glass and, and how it evolved and, and came to be. Um, Biltmore, for instance, is a great mm. historic and cultural attraction, not only because of the, the built itself, but also because of its uh, real uh, focus on all of the people who helped build that um, uh, amazing place. Gotcha. So it really doesn't require uh, some certain ethnic background or a minority story or something like that. It's really just about authenticity in uh, telling the history of the place and uh, what makes it special, right? It is. But I also think it's very important to be um, balanced and representative in that storytelling. I mean, you know, many historic sites were built by the enslaved populations. And so being mindful of their contributions is very important, not only to help us understand, you know, time and place, but also to really respect those who were involved in that process. And um, I think as we've evolved with cultural and heritage tourism, especially over the last three decades, if you will, we've been more mindful of telling those broader stories and making sure that we are, you know, maybe not just focusing on decorative arts, but also the people behind those decorative arts. If we're focusing on food, being able to talk about, you know, those origins of food and, and so that everybody understands how these elements came to be. Yeah. And, you know, I love that that makes it possible to discuss some topics that are heavy topics in ways that are not heavy handed, right? I mean, we need to be sober minded about issues like slavery, but you can't just hit people over the head with it uh, in every part of the travel experience. So giving them a, a taste of a cuisine or a, a musical cultural experience and tying it back to that past without, you know, making it a, a difficult and wrenching experience, I, I think is, um, is a great way forward to talk about those topics. Have you seen people uh, navigating that balancing act in a, a really authentic and uh, profitable way? I, I have. And I think, you know, part of it is, is providing context. 
and mm-hmm. helping people understand, you know, where where our country was, where our uh, uh, community was at a certain time and place and not trying mm-hmm. to overlay perhaps where we are today. It is important to be relevant and to, you know, make those associations, but helping to set the stage, you know, the uh, Great River Road along Louisiana's um, uh, Mississippi River uh, portal is also one where, you know, there's a lot of plantations, but having honest conversations about what those plantations, how they came to be, how the owners happened to make their money and how that then translated through the years is very important. In many cases, it's these places provide an opportunity to fill in the blanks of our heritage education that maybe we didn't get in our formative years. You know, we have a tendency to talk about the founding of our country, about the Civil War and then about civil rights, but we don't fill in the blanks in between. And so these are real opportunities to help talk about, you know, what happened during these other eras. It's the same thing as far as also looking at, you know, Native American populations and looking at, you know, even Route 66, how, you know, Route 66 was a, uh, was a, um, uh, you know, popular TV show in the 60s that kind of glamorized travel. But it really, um, the thing that many people don't realize is it went through many reservations. And so helping to help people understand the land that they traveled through and who owned that land is now an opportunity for education. Yeah, you know, Route 66 is a great example of uh, the evolution of this concept because, you know, it has a heritage as a travel experience that, that goes back, gosh, I don't know, 70 or 80 years now. So give us some examples of how this approach to cultural tourism might be different than, you know, the stereotypical Route 66 road trip where you would, you know, stop at one place for a chili dog and another place for an ice cream cone. How How is that experience evolving without completely getting away from what people knew and loved about something like Route 66? Well, I think it's even looking at not staying in a concrete teepee um, in Mm. Holbrook, Arizona, but instead looking at, you know, what are the native traditions and how to respect the land and being able to understand, um, you know, where those uh, uh, commemorations are held and how to engage with native populations in a respectful way. So those are the kinds of things that um, and and every um, community has their own uh, uh, activity that you could mm-hmm. engage in and maybe even getting back to some of the indigenous foods or crafts, you know, that are really, uh, you know, stories in themselves of uh, the native peoples and their traditions. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. So I know you have done some research into public uh, perception and demand for these kind of experiences. So what is your research telling you uh, that travelers are looking for when it comes to heritage tourism? Well, we're finding that, you know, not surprising post COVID, people are looking to be more active. They're wanting to, you know, and and most people don't say today I'm going to be a heritage traveler or a cultural traveler. They say, I want to go and experience something that maybe I don't have in my own backyard, maybe something new. I want to immerse myself in an environment where I learn about the people who live, work and maybe, um, you know, help settle the place. And they also want to have, when we look at immersiveness, they want to think about, well, how can I find those pieces, not only in the visits to historic sites or to uh, cultural events, but also then where do they stay? And is there local food 
um, places? Are there shops that they can go to where they can actually pick up, pick up a handmade memento and meet the artist, for instance? So it is that collection of activities, even as far as looking at how to have adventure activities or hikes, you know, walking tours, for instance, are much more popular now than maybe even the bus tour that you would have, you know, so that you can have it where you can really have a much more intensive and on the ground experience. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I've been uh, on a little personal crusade for a long time to to tell tour operators, hey, the little driving tour you're doing of the cities you come to, that's practically worthless. So instead of you know driving around to landmarks, why don't we get out for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, cover a smaller geographic area, but do it in a way that is uh, authentic and you can have some encounters and people are going to remember that so much more than just another hour driving on the bus. Absolutely. Because, you know, I think we've, especially heritage travelers want to get beyond the superficial. You know, they they want to delve into and are not afraid of, you know, having those tough conversations. But in order to have that kind of expansive learning, you need to have enough time to be able to experience a place and then be able to discuss it in context with your own environment. So following up on that idea of discussing it and, and having tough conversations, how do people come away from what could be a, a difficult encounter, especially, you know, like I'm, I'm white, you're white. A lot of times we're traveling and learning uh, stories about how our ancestors mistreated people of other nationalities. So how do we integrate that into a travel experience and then give people space to process that and uh, internalize it in a way that still feels positive and adds to the value of the travel experience? Well, I think one of the things that's, um, and the Educational Travel Consortium has been doing what they call learning labs. And one of the things that they've added is after you've gone to a um, a place where you may have some uh, unlearning or mm. uh, activities that, you know, really challenge what your beliefs have been, or maybe are helping you address some of the things that make you uncomfortable, to have a conversation over a meal and have a facilitated conversation where people on the tour can actually discuss how they feel. And it helps when there are, um, and I think that this is where a destination can also be part of this experience of having a local expert that can sit down at the table and talk about, you know, well, why certain things happened the way they did or provide an additional lens And so to open up those conversations so that people have the chance to express how they feel, but also then um, to be able to uh, digest um, other points of views. And that's really what is the great opportunity in cultural heritage tourism is that you're in a place where you are all hopefully curious about the destination. And so then to have a chance to really focus on your learning and then to share that and how it impacts you. So um, I'm going to put on my tour planner hat for a moment yes. and, and say, okay, I hear everything you're saying. It sounds fantastic, but it also sounds like a ton of work. And I don't know necessarily that I know who to call to arrange some of those experiences. So can you describe the benefits to tour operators and to travel planners from doing the work and uncovering those kind of experiences and, and ultimately how it will benefit their customers? Yeah, well, I think one of the things, if you uh, saw the uh, recent trend report by 
um, Wonderman Thompson, which does an annual hundred consumer trends. I mean, they talked about how academic adventures is really a trend where people do want to have experts leading those kinds of conversations. And I say that go to your local destination marketing organization, ask them who they can recommend if you've got your itinerary already planned out that can sit at that table. You know, maybe it's a musician, maybe it is a um, artist, maybe it is a chef, maybe it is a professor, maybe it is a civic leader, someone who is able to really help provide that perspective um, and context at the local level. It's also, though, I think important for the destination marketing organization to provide those kinds of experience that will set the stage. You know, I think that that is also where, you know, if, if you're looking for more authentic experiences, they're the ones who are going to be in the know. So a lot of DMOs saw, uh, unfortunately, tons of turnover uh, during the pandemic related to the pandemic. And uh, what we have found is that many of the people who are leading up product development at DMOs uh, are new, which is good in, in its own way, but they may not have the deep networks in their own communities that say a 20 year veteran in that position had. So uh, speak to the 25 year old uh, newbie at a CVB who has been charged with, you know, group sales or, or community outreach or product development, give them some tangible steps they can take to begin to get into their community, identify these opportunities and uh, cultivate them in order to be able to offer them to the traveling public. Well, the first thing I always say is to get out of your office and to go and um, be a tourist in your own community. Um, it's so often that I do assessments and I hear people say, you know, I haven't been there in you know five years. I haven't done that. And um, oh, I didn't even know that existed. And so if you don't know it exists, it's really hard to be able to share that information with someone else. And so having uh, that kind of uh, exercise where every week you're exploring something new, um, mm. But I think it's also where you're then looking at neighboring areas and what they're perhaps offering. So then say, well, you know, this is something we could offer a little bit different. And then that helps as far as especially for a group tour leader or operator to be able to think about how destinations can be linked together like a string of pearls. Yeah, absolutely. So help me resolve uh, something that I see as a little bit of a tension in this area. Um, I have been in many places that have been attempting to uh, facilitate this kind of cultural exchange. And uh, for one reason or another, it feels like the people on the ground maybe are only 80% ready, let's say for a tour group, that there's a gap between, you know, what they know inherently and their personal stories that they can tell so well, and then the logistics and the rhythms and the knowing how to serve 40 or 50 people at a time. So uh, when you work with communities, what do you do to help them prepare their local people for the tourism side of the business, which you still have to think about? Right. Well, I think that, I think you've hit on a critical consideration, and that is that many historic sites and cultural um, uh, entities do not think of tourism as their first mission. And so it's helping them understand how hosting visitors has a responsibility, just like as hosting their members or any other kind of group. And so it requires that kind of education locally but also to then help understand, and this is another reason to get out of the office and to go visit the place, if they can't handle because of capacity, um, maybe because of physical size or staffing or whatever, 
figuring out what is your capacity? How can you host someone? What can you do then that will, you know, how much time do they need to send, spend? And being able to pull all of those elements together is that on-site um, professional development in the tourism planning that um, needs to happen. And I think that can be done nowadays. It can be done through webinars. It can be done through having meetings of our cultural and heritage partners that the DMO leads and says, okay, we need to focus on this particular aspect or have you considered this element? And so having that as part of that training program. Yeah. I actually know DMOs that have a monthly series of gatherings in different places around their community. And they basically just go experience that attraction or that tour or whatever. And it creates opportunity for those attractions to kind of do a dry run, maybe of a, a new program or a new experience, do it with friendly faces, get some positive feedback. Absolutely. And, and you can even do things like role playing. You can say, you know what, I need to have 20 people that I'm going to recruit and they're going to all be part of a tour group and we're going to have them come in and test, you know, how logistics work and then give feedback. So there's ways to have all of this, but it needs to be um, considered a priority. Yeah. So uh, if a destination is developing these experiences with their local partners, how uh, scripted or maybe programmed or uh, choreographed does one of these experiences need to be versus how much freedom is there to riff and improvise? Well, it's interesting um, because I think where we've led in, it used to be that it was very scripted. Mm. And now we are going to more conversational interpretive programming. You know, I think, again, a trend we're seeing is people want to be involved. They want to contribute. And if there's a way that they can participate in a cleanup or in a um, fence building workshop where they can actually learn a skill that they can take back um, in a, a craft demonstration that they can actually see how hard it is to make sweet grass baskets um, and understand a, a historic art form. You know, those are the kinds of things that really help bring that learning into a more expansive and immersive way and touching all of the senses. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you mentioned this sort of service project idea. Uh, that's something that has been gaining steam over, I don't know, 15 or 20 years now. I'm curious if you can speak to another tension kind of in that area, which is people come to town, they want an, uh, a way to give back. They want a way to serve. But number one, how much good can 40 or 50 people really do in a couple hours of light work? And number two, is it is it make work? Is it busy work? Is, are you tying up resources by creating that opportunity that you could actually just more efficiently use by having paid experts do the work? Well, I think that there is um, a conversation that the local destination has to decide, you know, is this, you know, a, a furthering of our mission? I think there are also ways that you can give back that don't necessarily have to always be, you know, being part of a work crew. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, you know, Kansas Byways actually did a, a native fence building workshop because they had a lot of people who were interested in learning how to do stone fence work. And that also then was something that was needed on their byway. And it, mm -hmm. it made sense to learn that technique on site. So they had people coming in to learn that. So that was a good mission driven program. And that was also a give back. There are other ways, so like Virginia City, uh, Nevada, that has um, private label cemetery gin that mm. they sell at their visitor center. And a dollar goes to the preservation of, for every bottle sold, goes to the preservation of their historic cemetery. 
Um, why, why gin? Well, you know, as a um, mining town, it was better to drink gin than water in the, uh, in the 1800s. So right. it's a natural for them. But there are also places like, you know, you can have the 1% um, give back program where uh, 1% is added on to the bill of your restaurant or um, shopping or other kinds or locations or even overnight that's voluntary but that, you know, the tour operator could build in or if they had free time, that could be um, just optional. But then it goes back to maybe the conservation of natural resources or some um, official program that supports the destination aesthetics or appearance or historic preservation. Do you think there are people out there who are cultural heritage travelers at heart, but don't know it yet because they've they haven't been exposed to it? I hope so. Um, and I hope that, you know, you never know when that's going to happen. I was talking to um, a colleague and said that, you know, a seven-year-old came to one of their programs um, at a historic site and, you know, she was very conscious of the need to make sure that he was engaged. Mm. And she was so successful that he came back two more times with different adults. Cool. And I thought that that was, you know, so you never know where then that that experience will happen. Um, I know that, you know, people who maybe have gone to historic site tours when the fourth grade and found it very limiting or um, boring even, you know, they've had some kind of transformational experience as an adult because it's something touched them, they were able to relate to it, or that it really had um, an impact in some way. Yeah. You know, it seems like so much of adulthood is um, maybe undoing or relearning some things that we didn't get quite right during childhood for for one reason or another. I'm curious if you have any insight into how uh, an attraction, a museum, a park may be able to, to deliver student experiences that resonate on that uh, cultural level and don't just check boxes in a curriculum and don't leave kids, you know, jaded and thinking, well, I, you know, when I grow up, I'm never coming back to a museum. Well, I think we need to make sure that kids are engaged in that process of tour development. Mm. I know that uh, the Boston Museum of African-American History actually has a program where they hire interns that are high school students in the summer and they create programs, they create tours, mm. they create videos, they talk about what's important to them. And that then translates into a program that is offered year round or in subsequent areas. And I think that there's a school class um, that could be tapped in any situation, in any destination that could be your audience to actually try and say, what makes this interesting? What would you change? Um, and depending upon the audience that you're looking for, whether it's elementary school or high school or even college, getting their involvement, their ownership, even to have them conducting maybe some of the tours would be a way to have that engagement opportunity. That's a fantastic idea. You know, so many schools would jump at the opportunity for a free field trip. Yeah. Right. So if, if the attraction just says to their local school, hey, we need to pilot a program and we'd love to bring in your students to do it. We're going to do it at no charge. How many schools would be on top of that? I mean, what a cool yeah. opportunity. And, and so many st colleges have a requirement for service learning now. You know, they need mm. 100 hours of a project or an internship. Isn't that a great way to have um, someone in your backyard or someone that could come in and provide that kind of lens um, for learning? 
Yeah, fantastic. Well, this has been a masterclass for anybody uh, interested in, in developing tourism. Uh, I got a, a few more questions before we let you go, Cheryl. Where is the best place for people to find and follow you and your company? Well, I do have a website. It's hargroveinternational.com. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can email me at Cheryl at hargroveinternational.com. And I also um, welcome any phone calls or text. And that's at 202 202- Two three six three seven seven seven. Yeah, we'll put all that in the show notes. Uh, we have a, a set of final questions we ask everybody, and these are just fun getting to know you questions. So, uh, first question is: Are you a window seat person or an aisle seat person? I'm an aisle. I have a tendency to just get up and walk around a lot, mm. and so then I'm I'm not I'm I try to be more respectful of not climbing over someone. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. Okay, what is one thing that is in your carry on that you would never travel without? My Kindle. All right. So if you had a free airline pass and a week off work where you're going to travel, not for work, but just for fun, where do you think you would head next? Probably London. I lived there twice and it's a city that constantly changes and it constantly changes not only um, seasonally, but also culturally and um, even from a historic perspective. And so it is always a renewal when I go there. Very cool. Last question. What is something you have seen or done on the road that you wish you could go back and experience again with somebody you love? Cooking classes. Mm. I try, I do eat my way through every destination I go to. I love <laughs> local food. I love local beverage. I love local um, distilleries. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a uh, maker's mark ambassador. So I do love to um, and, and so cooking classes are, I think, just a great bonding experience. And it's something that we, we very much enjoy. Yeah, well, I have very much enjoyed this. Uh, we're going to have to have you back because there's so much more we could talk about. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cheryl Hargrove as much as I did. She is a wealth of wisdom, and I think she has a lot of great ideas there that we can all put into practice, no matter what role we play in the tourism industry. Uh, A few notes that I want to recap just to make sure you don't miss them. Cheryl said that the places that we go provide opportunities to fill in the blanks of our heritage education that maybe we didn't get in our formative years. Uh, You know, this is so critical because travel uh, does a wonderful job at filling in those gaps, things we forgot, things we didn't learn in school, things that for whatever reason weren't taught to us by our culture. It's so important to make us well-rounded citizens of our country, citizens of the world. And so that needs to be something that is a high priority for everybody working in tourism. She also said that to heritage travelers want to get beyond the superficial. You know, one of the criticisms of the group style of traveling, uh, touring places, having a busy itinerary, going from one place to another, is that it can be rather difficult to break beneath the superficial layer of a destination, only seeing the highlights, only seeing well-curated versions of what the locals want you to see. But I think including even one or two of these heritage experiences can really help uh, round that out and overcome that weakness. And you might find that the more you do that, the more people in your group and in your audience love that kind of experience and ask for more of it on your future tours. 
Now, Cheryl said it helps for destinations to have a local expert that can sit down at the table and talk about why certain things happened the way they did, especially in places that have maybe difficult history or, or things that uh, we need to talk about, but uh, the conversations can be rather challenging. Uh, she also said that if you're a tour planner, you should go to your local DMO and ask them who they can recommend that can sit down at that table. You know, you have heard me say it before. You will hear me say it again. The DMO, the CVB, the local tourism expert is the best resource you have to help you plan trips that are memorable and meaningful, go beyond and below the surface to create experiences that will really resonate with people and help them be better off once they go home. So take advantage of those people. Don't be afraid to call the sales representative at your CVB and ask them to help you come up with something that they have never thought of before, help connect you with somebody in the community that may not be even connected to tourism, but they can add that value to your group. Chances are they're going to be excited to do that research, excited to come alongside you and help you build that travel product. And so they're doing you a favor and you are actually helping them out too. Finally, Cheryl said that for cultural attractions, hosting visitors brings responsibility just like hosting members or any kind of group. You know, I have found over and over around the country that there are some amazing places with amazing stories to tell that for whatever reason have not been trained, they haven't been taught, they haven't been exposed or haven't done the work of preparing to host tourists, understanding that tourists have a specific set of needs. They need restrooms. They may need food service. They may need to be spoken to or have things explained to them in a way that is different than locals do, different than community members. They may need some context. They may need some background. They may need you to abbreviate your normal spiel in order to uh, make it something that fits within their attention span and their frame of reference. So if you're going to be involved in tourism, specifically with groups, you need to do that underlying work to figure out how you serve them well, how you make them comfortable, how you take care of them, and how you present your product in a way that resonates with them, not just with your core audience. And that brings us to the hot minute. That's right. The hot minute is the portion of the program where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue that is impacting tourism every day. And today we are going to talk about guides and docents and what they are doing wrong in leading group tours and some things that they could tweak or do better to make those travel experiences better for groups. So let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get into it. So I have visited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of historical and cultural attractions around the country and around the world. And I can tell you that at almost every one, the guides and docents, well, they just talk too much. They go on and on and on about the smallest details of the place without realizing that that's not what most of their visitors really care about, especially their group visitors. And many times this is just a problem of training, especially if they are volunteers. They have been given a script. They've been given a training manual. They memorize that script. They memorize those details and no one ever bothered to stop and think, hey, 
is this really what people want to know about? And so many visitors like me spend most of their time bored. So what should you do instead? Well, train your docents and your guides to tell a few interesting and engaging stories. Now they can have all the facts and details in the background, but they need to focus on what is most engaging, what is most personal, what is something that people can connect with. And then if people connect and have more questions, they can dive into all those details. That's the hot minute. That's the way I see it. You are welcome to disagree. And of course, we'll still be friends. Whether you disagree or agree or have other thoughts or questions you'd love to tell us about, we would love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at grouptravelleader.com and you never know, your thoughts, questions, comments, or critiques might just be the topic of the next hot minute. And hey, while you're in the mood to give us some feedback, would you do me a favor and go over to your podcast player of choice? It could be Apple Podcasts. It could be Spotify. It could be Amazon or Google or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Hop over there to our show page. Give us a rating and a review. We would love to hear what you think there. We love to uh, help get the visibility that comes from those reviews. They are a big help to us and we thank you for it. Well, that about wraps things up for this episode. My thanks once again to Cheryl Hargrove. On the next episode of Gather and Go, we're going to bring you a great interview with Jacqueline Label-Cote of Colette, who is going to tell us all about her company's history of setting tourism trends and how she has learned to listen to customers in developing products that prove to be extremely popular and trend-setting in the tour market. You won't want to miss that. In the meantime, remember this. At the end of the day, we are all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you next time on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Donya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Kyle Anderson is our director of sales and marketing. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle at 888-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of the Group Travel Leader. For more information about our magazines, podcasts, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com. This episode of Gather and Go was sponsored by Visit Savannah. Savannah, Georgia's charm can be found in its rich history, tree-lined cobblestone streets, exciting events, and unbeatable dining experiences. Check out visitsavannah.com to see why your next tour should stop in Savannah.